Welcome to the audio ministry of Grove Park Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina. We pray you will be blessed by today's message. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word now and turn to James chapter 1. God, we give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which speaks to us not only to console us and to comfort us, but to challenge us and to convict us. And we confess, O oh Lord, that while we're really happy when the Word does the first two, then we try to sneak out when the Word does the other two. So make it inescapable for us today that it would change our hearts, it would arrest us in the direction that we are heading and move us into a completely different direction, a direction that you have ordained, the direction that you have called us to. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we should at the beginning this morning recognize that new environments and situations can make things pop up within us that we might not have previously been aware existed. It was certainly something that James understood. And so he spent some time admonishing these freshly scattered disciples to be aware of not only what was around them in their new locations, but what was within them that could trip them up. Notice, Verses 13 and 15 of chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, too often, you and I like to rationalize our sin as something that just happens. It flies in out of the blue. We like to rationalize it by blaming it on some outside force, such as when we say, the devil made me do it. Some blame God for their falling victim to sin based off of the text that I just read. I suspect they hold up their fight with sin as some test from God to prove their fidelity to the gospel and their deep faith in Jesus. 
as if God would use sin and our falling prey to it to make us love Him more. Sometimes we like to excuse our sin by blaming the actions of another as the impetus to our action. Like when we say that if so-and-so had abstained from X, I would not have been forced to respond by doing Y. When Y is almost always sinful in this spiritual equation. To all of these rationalizations then, James gives us a theological word, I think, for what they all are. Malarkey. We use our rationalizations to get us off the hook of doing the necessary examinations to seek out what seeds of sin lie within us and burrow, and, and burrow them out regardless of how deep and difficult they may be. Beloved, are you aware of what is within you today? Have you bothered to take the time to ask yourself the hard questions about your motives, your thoughts, your likes and dislikes to find if there is something hidden that given the right set of circumstances could pop out and wreck you and your faith? This week I came across a book of prayers from the Orthodox Church, which had a section in it entitled Methods of Self-Examination, which detailed questions one should ask themselves as they confess their sins. We might like to think that that would have been a short section. It went for 24 pages. Here are some of the questions. Have you been satisfied with pious feelings and beautiful ceremonies without striving to obey God's will? Have you disregarded your sins or held to the pretense that you are better than you truly are? Have you read false motives into others' behavior? Have you been overprotective of your children? Have you been a sycophant attempting to win favor, support, affection, or advancement and position through practicing flattery of persons of influence? Have you refused to uphold truth to fulfill your duties to perform good works or to defend those wrongfully attacked because you fear criticism or ridicule or because you seek to gain the favor and approval of others? Have you been unconcerned over injustice to others, especially that caused by currently accepted social standards? Our failure, beloved, to ask ourselves questions like these is killing us spiritually. It is killing our witness, which ultimately is killing our communities of faith, the end of which will kill any pretense of a moral society. We wish 
to blame others for this. We blame the government. We blame technology. Right now, we're blaming how people are voting. We blame any number of issues for this, but Shakespeare nailed it when he said, the fault is not in our stars, it is in ourselves. Truly then, James is correct. One of the most surefire ways we can avoid committing willful sin is if we are aware of and already exterminating the deadly seeds of temptation that are currently present within each of us that will ultimately germinate into sin. Yet, James does not stop there but goes on to uncover other sinful traps of which we must be aware. If you were to look at James chapter 4, verse 17, you would find these words. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is a passage of scripture that I heard way too often as a child. Beloved, how often do you think about the things that you don't do as sin? Far too many Christians believe themselves to be blameless because they simply abstain from sin and fail to recognize they come to worship with tarnished halos and filthy robes because of the countless things they should be doing for the kingdom of God that they are not. Once more, we employ rationalizations that only spring the snare of sin into which we fall. We say things like, hate the sin, love the sinner, and then deploy the sinner's sin as a pretext for deeming them unredeemable and thereby unworthy of our sharing the gospel. We respond to our Lord's call to love our neighbor by doing as the young lawyer did in that text and asking, who is my neighbor? So we don't have to expend unnecessary love on ones we don't have to or even more pointedly, we exude confidence in saying we don't hate anyone and fail to recognize that being apathetic about our neighbor is likewise contrary to loving them. Are you aware of what you are doing today? Those, alone, those two factors alone would give us enough work to do, I suspect, to last us the rest of our natural lives. But James gives us one more thing that can propel us into sin's trap. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have, been, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Beloved, it's important to remember that James was not writing to pagans. James was not writing to people who did not confess Jesus Christ as Lord. James was writing to people who did confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And you may say that, well, he's writing to Christians who are rich and therefore that's not applicable to me because I'm poor and so try to rationalize your way out of this one understand something that his caution extends to all of us no matter where we find ourselves in the economic spectrum the caution is quite simply that we sin when we fail to use what we have justly, as well as when we are deaf to the cries of the oppressed. These folks have so much that what they have is going bad. Their gold and their silver is corroding. Their riches are rotten. Their garments are moth-eaten. They have so much, while at the same time, those who work for them are not being paid what they deserve and are suffering want. When we withhold our excess to help the oppressed, we are committing sin, beloved. When we fail to advocate for the needy and the oppressed, for those crying out to God for someone to hear their plea, we are no better than those who are oppressing them. James recognizes that it is even more incumbent on these scattered believers to meet the needs of the oppressed around them, ministering to the unbelieving world in which they find themselves through the sacrifice of their excess not simply to steer folks from sin, including themselves, but as a witness to the lost. James remembered, as should we, the words of Jesus when he encouraged us to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Accordingly then, our awareness and confrontation of sin becomes tantamount to expanding the kingdom of God. So how then should we confront sin once we become aware of it? 
Well, first, we must feel afresh the gift of salvation and not be deceived by passing pleasures. Notice with me chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God did not have to send His Son to save us. Jesus, God incarnate, did not have to endure the suffering and shame of the cross to save us. God did not have to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Him and enable us to be born again. Yet, James tells us that God brought us out of our sin by the word of truth so that we could be called the sons and daughters of God. And we know this is a gift we do not deserve. It is, as James says, a good and perfect gift that we should cherish. One who holds precious the free gift of salvation is one who does not treat sin lightly, but continuously seeks its eradication so that they may look more and more like the Christ who gave them the gift. Are you looking more like Him today? Secondly, we remember a passage we examined last week in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, where James concludes by saying, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know what, that whoever brings him back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Beloved, we should never underestimate the impact of helping someone out of their sin on our own souls. It invigorates our soul to not only help more and more from their wayward condition, but as we hold the light for them, its beam illuminates those things within us that are wayward and hurtling us down a wayward path. Our light which brings sinners to redemption also serves to sanctify us. It is why I think that I should be out of the baptizing business. What do you mean, Mark? I personally believe that if you go out and win someone to Jesus, you should do the dunking. 
Because if you do the dunking, you'll get to experience what I get to experience. And that is the absolute thrill of baptizing someone. And when you baptize someone, you just want to do it again and again and again and again. And so I really do wish that we would take to heart these last lines in James and go out and win people and then baptize them. Because when you do, yeah, I promise you, it's better than a potato chip. You don't need just one. You need two and three and four. And the next thing you know, you've had the bag. So how is it today, beloved? Are you sufficiently aware of what you are and aren't doing? Of what lies deep within you that you are properly outfitted for service in the kingdom? Or are you unaware of what's within you and therefore you will disqualify yourself for service in the kingdom. Have you really looked, beloved? Have you really examined what's within you? I am synonymous in our house for not looking well. I generally can't find anything. One night we were at Sandy Branch and we were having dinner, uh, a fam uh, fellowship dinner, and it was, it was breakfast, as I recall. And Eliza had been the hostess for the dinner and had put it on, and we had eggs. We had scrambled eggs. Now, there's a debate about whether or not you put ketchup on eggs, and it depends on the type of egg you're eating, in my opinion. If it's scrambled, it needs ketchup. And so it was that we had scrambled eggs, and I got some, and I got to the end of the line, and there was no ketchup on the table. And so I looked at Eliza, and I said, where's the ketchup? She says, it's in the kitchen. I said, okay. So I go in the kitchen, open the refrigerator, and I look, and there's no ketchup. I go back out, I say, there's no ketchup. Well, forgot this when I told this story the first time this morning. There, another friend of mine was standing beside me and he said, well, I'll go look. So he goes and looks. He comes back out. There's no ketchup, he says. Eliza says, I'll go look. Now, sometimes those words drive absolute fear into my heart. <laughs> but I knew I hadn't seen the ketchup, and I knew that Doug hadn't seen the ketchup. So I felt safe. And I said, you go do that. Well, out Mrs. Sanders' bitty bops just a few seconds later with a full bottle of ketchup. And I said, where was it hidden? And she said it was sitting right out front with nothing in front of it. 
she said, you didn't look. Beloved, let us never, ever have to hear God say to us, you didn't look. There is always something, beloved. We just choose not to see it. And if you say, Pastor Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm cool today. Don't worry about me. I'm going to say back to you, have you really looked? Are you aware of what it is that you are doing? Are you aware of what it is you are not doing? Are you aware of what it is that is within you that could just pop out and you don't even recognize it's there because you've never asked God to search you and show you the hidden ways that are in your heart? And so you're going to stumble. Have you really looked today, beloved? For this time, in this moment, in our history, as the people of God, in this land, we have to look. We have to look at what we are doing and what we aren't doing. Because God needs us as His frontline soldiers now more than ever. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I'm reminded of Scarlet. Sometimes Scarlet refuses or seems incapable of looking at what it is that I'm pointing out to her. And so I have to take my hands and put them on either side of her head and focus her in the direction of what it is that I need her to see. And Lord, I confess that I, and I am confident, all of us in here this morning are the same way with you. And Lord, we need you to grab us by the head and focus us on what it is that we aren't doing. Focus us on what it is we are doing. Focus us on what things are hidden so that we can continue to do Because, Lord, we know that you have placed us in the kingdom for such a time as this. And, Lord, we need to get to work. Last week we heard that we need to be active. This week, Lord, we hear that we must be aware. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us aware today of what it is that we need to do. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please join us next Sunday for worship either in person at 9 or 11 a.m. at 108 Trail 1, Burlington, North Carolina, or at 11 a.m. on Facebook Live. For more information and resources on our church, please visit groveparkchurch.net. And remember, grace abounds.